This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, it's great to be together. We are going to be in Ecclesiastes this morning. So if you have your Bible, open it to Ecclesiastes, probably right near, maybe just to the right of middle. If you're in a pew Bible, it's page 555. And get this, we're going to be in chapter 5. You only need to remember one morning, one, one number this morning. 555, chapter 5. We will be continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Before we get going, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, our heart is to come now, humble ourselves under you, under your word, and with that spirit of humility to come and to ask and to listen. Make your presence, which is here, known to us, and refine us into the worshiping body, the church that you want us to be. That work is never finished. Would you take us one step farther, one step further into dependence on you this morning? We pray. Help us to understand and be blessed in the study of your word. Amen. I want to start off with a question. What do you think the people who live in this neighborhood, our neighborhoods, think that we do in here? What do the people that live in your neighborhood think that you are doing in here right now? So first, we can get even more basic than that. What do the people who live around us think that a church is? What do they think a church is? So for me, God willing, in August, I will reach my 10th anniversary as pastor of our Savior. If you wonder where that decade went, you're not alone. I wonder where that decade went. And when I was having conversations with the the group, the people that were going to make the decision about who to present to the congregation for the opening of pastor here at our Savior, one of the things that we talked a lot about was who our Savior was And who God was calling us to be. And for me, as I thought and I prayed and I studied, a lot of that intersected with where we were and who the people of our Savior already were. So first, there are so many people in this church who, yes, love God. But what's probably even more unique, a little bit more unique, even in solid churches is there are lots of people and have been historically in this church who love God's word and have a genuine desire to have their hearts and minds renewed by the Bible. So if we're going to be anything, we're first going to be a Bible church. That's number one. The second thing that I loved about our Savior from the jump is where we are. So my heart beats for the local church. I love the global church. I love missions. At one point in my life, I thought I was going to be a foreign missionary. I love that there are, at this time, and whenever Sunday morning rolls around for people as the earth rotates on its axis, Christians will gather together on every continent and worship together this morning. And I love all that. But week in and week out, my, my heart is excited for this church to come together and for me to be with you. That's what I love. 
And if you ask me, what do I want? What is my hope as a pastor? It is first and foremost to reach the people who live right here in, in Wheeling and in Buffalo Grove and in, in the villages that surround us. So I love the local church. And the first time that I learned that our Savior existed, I remember. It's in this apartment that Holly and I had in, uh, just outside of Denver, Colorado. And I looked up our Savior online and I searched out you know, where it was geographically and I got to the satellite view. Right, And this is what I saw. This is what you still see today. To our north and to our south are houses. To our west is a public elementary school. And to our east is a public library. You cannot get more local than two neighborhoods, a school, and a library. I mean, come on. That is as local as a local building, community-centric can be. And I loved that. So that's the background that I'm thinking of when I ask this question. What do people who live in these houses, what are the families with the kids in this school, what are the people who are going to come to the library and play at the park next to the library this afternoon? It's like 85 today, and come on again. What are the people who are going to do these things think we do in here? What do they think a church is? And just let me ask you this question. What do you think a church is? Why have you come in here this morning? And one more, how? How have you come in this morning? I don't mean how did you get here, did you walk, did you drive, did you bike? I mean, what's your heart like when you walked in this morning? Are you here? Did you tune in online because you are desperate in your heart for a connection to the living God you are ardent in your worship, or is it something else? And there are lots of other somethings. And I'll be honest with you, for me in my heart, much of the time, if I don't check myself, it's the something else. And I know I'm, I'm a pastor, but that doesn't mean, you know, I, I just wake up every morning saying, Lord, wherever, wherever you're going today, I'm following. And I don't hit the pillow every night, you know, just saying, Check another day off as completely lived in submission with gratefulness and under the grandeur of God and the glory of Christ. I don't do that. I struggle just like everybody else to not just go through the motions of life, to not just go through the, the motions of spirituality. And there are many times, not just days, seasons, whole seasons, where I'm doing everything that I know I'm supposed to do, but if my thoughts were made known, you'd see quickly it wasn't that because my heart is always full of joy in Christ. It's oftentimes that it's just sometimes more convenient to keep up appearances than it is to divulge the, the real state of my heart. And I, I, I don't have some massive sin that disqualifies me from ministry, nor am I referring to a, a crisis. I'm not questioning my faith in, in God or God of the Bible. What I'm saying is that it's easy to drift as a Christian, as a family of Christians in the church, it's easy to drift. And our drift is never toward greater dependence on God. It's always toward me-centeredness. We always drift toward the self, not toward others, not toward the glory of the Lord. 
It's for what's easiest for us, our definition of what's best for us. And all of that has a profound effect on how we worship. The same thing is true for everybody in this room. How we worship reveals what we worship. And so, one more time, I ask, why have you come and how have you come this morning? The writer of Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher. And he's going to say our answer to those questions at every stage of life, in every season of life, are profoundly important. Why do you worship? How do you worship? And that will reveal what you worship. And so let's go. We're going to read kind of in three or four chunks this morning. The first chunk is just the first sentence of Ecclesiastes 5, starting at verse 1. Ecclesiastes 5, starting at verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. It's a big sentence. Literally, it's pay attention to the direction that you are walking when you go to the house of God. Now, have you ever tripped or missed a step and it hurt, and afterwards you realized I wasn't watching where I was going? The house of God here is the temple in Jerusalem. The preacher is most likely Solomon. He's king of Israel. And Solomon oversaw the building of the temple. It's fair to say that nobody knew the temple better than Solomon. Everything about this grand building was meant to focus you on God. But what Solomon the preacher is saying is even when you go to the temple, a purpose-built building grand in scale, magnificent in beauty, ornate to show the greatness of God, the supremacy of God, a place for people to encounter the one true real and living God. Even when you go there to worship, it's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. You have to watch and you have to pay attention to the way that you're going. And the same thing is true for us in the church today. We have to pay attention to the way we go, to the why of what we go, and to how we are entering. Otherwise, our focus is drawn away. Our worship is diverted. And it becomes something that I don't think any of us want it to be. I love our church. I love our church family. I love this building. But I have heard, I have been a part of Conversations. I've probably started a lot of them. Where what we're really worshiping, where what this is supposed to be about, have not always been at the forefront of my mind or your minds or our minds together. Listen, I have said and I have heard some silly things for people to be upset about in churches in my time. I've, I've been a pastor almost 20 years now. I've worked for three churches And every single one of them, I have heard some just absolutely silly things that people are concerned about. You know what? I I love you. I care about you. I've loved all the people that God has given me to serve. But the best way that I can say this is when our worship is diverted, 
it has a substantially negative effect on our soul, on our spirit, our minds. Everything about us is impacted. And so when we come in here, it's easy if we don't check it. It's easy if we aren't careful to care about some little things. Every once in a while, my time here, it's happened at other churches too. People will come in and say, hey, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm upset about this in worship. I'm upset about that. And, and it's something small. It's something kind of petty. It's something kind of silly. And here's where my thought goes. I just got to be honest about you. My heart goes to this. And my mind goes to this. So you're bringing this up in a room where we come in together and we have, guys, this cross. I don't know if you've ever taken a, a gander at this cross, but do this after the worship service you want. This isn't a sacred space. Come right up here. This thing is huge. I don't know if, the, I don't know if online you're going to get this, but when you walk up here and you just stand under this thing, this thing's got to be 15, maybe 20 feet tall. It's massive. And so my thought immediately goes to, we have at the front of our sanctuary a 20-foot-tall symbol of the sacrificial substitutionary giving of God's only Son so that any who believe in Him might have their sins paid for and might have the promise of life forever with God. We've come in here to celebrate that. We have that on the wall to remind us of that and the thing you just told me about, that's what you're upset about? That's just where my heart goes sometimes. And I've done it. I've thought, oh, God, we need to do this. And I'm like, what? The cross. We have this giant banner. We have this giant flag in the front of our sanctuary. And it's not there by accident. And I'm upset about that thing. And I'm focused in on that thing. So the preacher says, careful, be careful how you come. So next couple of lines, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you were on earth, therefore let your words be few. Now to understand this, we need to confront two massive misconceptions about what church is supposed to be. So over the past something like 40, 50, 60 years, we've seen this sort of church buffet laid out before us. And, and often the goal, often the purpose is virtuous, hoping to, to reach people with the good news of Jesus. But instead, what's often happened is that it's convinced us of something that's often called, maybe just one title you could give it, is consumer-driven worship. Convinced us that we can worship like consumers. So you can find a church that plays a style of music that you like or one where people will dress up in their Sunday best. Or you can watch your favorite preacher online, or you can find one with a brand new facility, you can find one with anything that you want. And there's some really good things about that. Don't get me wrong, there's some good things about that. But ultimately, I don't think that movement has served us, I just mean Christians, especially in our country, well. 
Corporate worship is first and foremost a humble submission to God among a people who prize his glory above everything else. And so the first massive misconception that we need to handle when we come to the topic of corporate worship is this isn't about us. It's not about our secondary preferences. This is about the glory of God. And the second misconception is that the church is not here to distract us or minimize our problems. We're actually here to join together in leaning into our problems. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's so normal for a person in the midst of chaos, pick your thing. They fear their marriage is, is on the rocks. Maybe it's ending. You're just grieved by the rebellion of your children. You wonder what calamity is coming next. You're stressed about work, if you're even going to have a job in a couple of weeks. Maybe who will take care of you when you're older. And I, I could just keep going on and on about the stresses of life. But then you come to church, and even with your closest Christian friends, when you're asked, hey, how are you? You just have this automatic response of, great, glory be to God, never better. And that's not what church is supposed to be. And for every one of us, the, the preacher's caution is the same. Come to listen. And when you do speak, Make sure what you say is honest. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Which means God already knows what is true and what isn't. He sees things, God sees things as they really are. So when you pretend that things are way better, you're not fooling him. You might be trying to fool yourself, but even you know better. And so you're not really, when, when we lie about how we're doing, when we lie about what is happening, we're not really helping anybody, but we're hurting ourselves. So let me just tell you something right now. It's a risk to trust people with who you really are and what's really happening in your life. That is a risk. I won't minimize that. But it is a risk that's absolutely worth taking. Because the payoff of a friend to come alongside you, the payoff of a friend to pray with you, the payoff of, some, the payoff of somebody to help, just somebody saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I've been there too. Or the best one, I love you. That's huge. And for those who somebody chooses to trust and share with, just a few things to that end. So when somebody does take this risk and share these things with us, here's how I think to respond a little bit. First, recognize that it's no small thing for a person to come vulnerably to you and tell you something real. That's no small thing. That is risky. So don't skip what a position of privilege God has put you in when somebody trusts you in that way. 
And when it happens, don't ruin it by talking a whole lot. I talk a lot. And often my instinct when I don't know what to say is to say a whole lot of things. Just foolishly hoping that one of them works out. And it's taken me a lot longer probably than it should have to realize that the best things you can usually say when somebody lays a burden before you is to just simply say, I'm so sorry. That sounds really hard. Or the absolute best thing we could say is, I love you. I love you. If people want you to help solve their problems, they will ask. All the wives just said amen. For the most part, people are telling you not because they need your best tip, but because it's going to be helpful for them to just process that out loud, to just have a friend who will come alongside of them. So the best thing you can do is just sit there and let them speak. Let your words be few. But this passage is for worshipers. And it teaches us something about our posture before God. Especially when we are trying to be disingenuinely pious. So listen more, speak less. Jesus tells a parable about two men who came to the temple to pray. One is outwardly godly. So he prays this long, eloquent prayer that's really just kind of a list of his spiritual accomplishments. The other's a known sinner, and he's grieved by that. So Jesus says he beats his breast in anguish, and he cries out to God from his heart. And Jesus said it was the repentant man, the second man, not the religious man, who was heard and forgiven by God. Our posture should be authenticity in worship because God is in heaven. He's high and mighty and he knows. So be real before God and real before other people. It's a risk, but it's one worth taking. Verse three, similar idea. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The preacher means that a fool posturing as someone who is righteous is like something out of a dream. To them, it feels real, but to everybody else, especially God, it's just a a fantasy. So let's move on to verses four and five. Preacher begins talking about vows, making vows. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So first, this might seem a little foreign to us, but that's, I think, only because of the specific language used. We don't call them vows, but we make promises all the time. In fact, many of us love to make promises. It's following through on the promise that's the hard part. Sometimes we say, well, I'm a people pleaser. Sometimes it's a, be, it's a desire to be known as a servant or a leader or to gain influence. 
But many of us love to be counted on for things. And so it leads us to step forward, often I think very well-meaning, and say, you can count on me for that. Sometimes it's somebody asking for prayer. Sometimes it's asking us to step up and lead or serve. And making the promise earns immediate satisfaction. We feel great. I'm the one who said I could pray. I'm the one who said they would lead. I'm the one who said they would do it. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel big, look big in the eyes of the people in front of us. And so we love to do it. But it's follow through that can be the problem. So have you ever had this experience? Somebody shared something with you and you said, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for that. And then they text you like three or four days later and you say, hey, good news. Test turned out pretty well. Thanks for praying. Only you forgot to pray. Ever had the thrill of having a friend in need or ask for a favor and say, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. Only when you realized it was going to cut into some free time, it's maybe going to be a little harder than you thought. You just kind of put it off and you forget. Maybe your friend is kind of courteous enough to not bring it up again. Maybe they have to say, hey, do you remember when you said you'd do that for me? Well, it's very possible to say the same thing with God. The kind of vows the preacher specifically has in mind are neither expected in the Old Testament nor forbidden. People could make promises to God, but what the preacher is saying Be very careful when you do. Because God is not impressed by promises in the moment. He's seeking faithfulness. He's not seeking a, a grand momentary display. He's seeking people whose hearts are consistently toward him. In fact, what the preacher is saying is God would rather someone be genuine, admit their lowliness, admit that they're burned out, admit that they lack confidence to do something, Rather than, you know, feel pressed into something or worse, like the idea of being seen as a big shot who can make a lot of promises so they commit to something but never really follow through on it. On the New Testament, Jesus is going to come along and he's going to change this ethic. He's going to say, instead of making vows, you don't need to make vows. In fact, you shouldn't, in general, just be a person who's known for integrity, just being a person who's known for doing what they say they will do. When my oldest daughter was six or seven, so like five year, four or five years ago, we went through this phase where she was trying to, to make little promises and little deals, and then she wouldn't follow through on them. And when her mom and I would talk to her about that, she'd say, well, it wasn't a pinky promise. So there were promises, and then there were pinky promises The pinky promises were the more sincere and honest promises. And so for me, I'd say something, and she'd say, well, do you promise? And first of all, kids never forget anything. And so parents, you have to be very careful about what you say, yeah, I promise to your kids. You you just learn as a parent to say things like, well, I hope so, or maybe, maybe is a big one. Maybe, um, which is dad speak for, no, we're not going to do that. So she'd say, well, do you pinky promise? Because sometimes I would. I'd say, yeah, I promise. She said, well, is it a pinky promise? And I'd say, sweetheart, when daddy says he's going to do something, there's not promises and pinky promises. And we talk about this right here. Let your yes be your yes, what Jesus says, and your no be your no. And I just said, I want to be a dad 
who you don't have to wonder what kind of promise I'm making. If I promise something, I want to do it. And I've had to learn this lesson the hard way. A few years ago, a good friend in our church, a man that I've served a lot with, came to me with a, a concern he had about me. Still a dear brother this day. I, I, love, I love this friend. Uh, and his concern was that I would commit to things, often with the very best of intentions. He's gracious to give me that. But I do. I have a tendency to overcommit. Uh, and it can hurt my standing with people. It really can. And so a friend had asked for help. I agreed to help. I asked this other friend and a few other people to be part of the help team, but I, I wanted to maintain a leadership role, and then I couldn't do that well because I had completely overcommitted about what I could do, how much time I had to do it, what was going to be available to me. And when my friend came and, and said, hey, I want to talk to you about how this went, what I realized was I, I loved the idea of being a problem solver. I loved the idea of being somebody could count on and say, I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to gather some people. I'm going to lead a team. We're going to do that. But what ended up happening was it just ended up being a big problem for everybody. It caused a bunch of frustration because I, I had recruited a team of people, wanted to lead them that I was totally unprepared to lead. My friend was on that team. And he said, you know what? It would have been better if you would have just done this. If you would have just humbled yourself and told your friend, I, I can't really help, but I'd love to connect you with someone who can, things would have gone a whole lot better. Yet uh, We had a team of, of brothers in this church who wanted to, to, to do this, people who wanted to do this. All I had to do was get out of the way. But I loved the idea of being a go-to guy. So it would have been better if I would have just been more humble, given up the credit, gotten out of the way and let others do what God had called them to do. Verse says, 6 says this another kind of way. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So the context here is people who promised to contribute a certain amount of money to the temple. But when they failed to give it, the temple would send someone to make an inquiry to ask about the money. Then the person would make a kind of excuse. They would say the, the promise is a mistake. And that kind of lie, that kind of manipulation, where you wanted to be seen as generous, you wanted to be seen as wealthy, kind of a big shot, where you wanted the praise of people, oh, wow, you're going to give that much money. That's, that's great. We could really use that. But when it came time to fulfill the promise... You didn't come through. And here's the problem. God sees your heart the whole time. He knows what's going to happen. And then other people learn you're not somebody to be trusted. It was never sincere. And in the end, it was far better to never have said anything at all. So it's not wrong to make a promise. It's not wrong to even make sometimes a promise to God. But make sure you're prepared to follow through on that promise because God is in heaven and he sees and he knows. And people on earth, and eventually people will come to know that you're somebody that can't be counted on. Verse 7 wraps this up really well. If the questions these verses are asking is, why have you come? Why do you bother coming to the church? The caution is to check your heart and make sure it is for worship and not something else. 
Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Put another way, if you've come because you get kind of an emotional rush from being here, or you've come hoping God will give you something, bless you in some way because of your church attendance, or you've come because you love the perception of appearing godly, then you've not come to worship God. You've come for yourself. If those things are true, you've not come for God, you've come for you. On the other hand, God delights when people he has called and redeemed come together and exalt his name. He takes great pleasure in that. Unless you believe that the only way to glorify God is to come in here and to sing songs and amen the prayers and follow along with the sermon in your Bibles, those are all good things. But in truth, you actually don't need the rest of the church to do that. So those are good things. Do those things. We should be a worshiping people. But Jesus said that God's people should also be, in addition to a corporately gathering people for singing and praying and preaching, Jesus said that we should be a loving people, an abundantly loving people, focused on others, serving other people. John 13, 35, Jesus said that the world will know his followers by their love for other people. It's good to be in church. Come. Absolutely, we should. Make it a priority. But our godliness is not known by the raising of our hands. It is not known by how many I'll pray for you promises we make. Our godliness will ultimately be known to others, to the world, and most importantly, before God himself, by how we love other people. The Apostle Paul said that as he went around and planted churches around the Mediterranean, his greatest joy was churches with Christians united together in love. That's Philippians 2, 2. I'm not naive enough to think that, that people who live in, in the houses that surround us, people who go to that park, go to the library this afternoon, will all look over here and even think much about what it is that we do in here. I know a lot of people don't think about the church. But if you and I share the good news of Jesus with a friend, and if that friend becomes interested in salvation, and if you invite your friend to be part of your church family, our church community, if somebody is just in these houses and they realize, hey, there's a church there, and they decide to wander in, to wander over, I hope that above all, they would find in here a group of people that loves God and loves one another. Our church does, just doesn't happen to be located here. We believe with every fiber of our being that our church is here. And I, I mean the building a little bit, but really I mean the gathering of people. We are here together. We exist 
so that the people in Wheeling and beyond might know the love of God and the gift of Jesus Christ, and that as many as God would bring would join us here, not finding religious people who pretend that that we're perfect, but real people, admitting our brokenness, declaring our utter dependence on the grace of God, and knowing that it's it's not because of our beauty, but because of his promises and his steadfastness that God loves us with unending grace. And so why do we come? Why do we gather? We gather in response to the abounding grace of God, and we humble ourselves before him. We do what the preacher says. We gather to listen. We ask God to be a people who grow us in grace and love for one another. That's what I hope. The world doesn't need more people trying to convince everybody around them that they are better than they are, happier than they are, healthier, wealthier than they are. Especially the rise of social media has given birth to a generation of people desperately wanting people to look at us. But it's not new, really. We just do it in a different way on social media. What our world needs is more Christians humble before God, humble before other people, looking for ways to serve, finding chances to love, and humbling ourselves to be open to being served by other people. Folks, that's a church. That's a true biblical church. Churches aren't worship centers where you come... Our leaders get up here and perform, and we all play make-believe about whose life is greater than everybody else's. True churches are groups brought together by the choosing of God, powered by the gospel, like a fire stoked through worship, and who come asking, how can I use the gifts, the things that God has made me good at, to serve other people? By God's grace, folks, we are that kind of church. But let's not grow complacent. And let's together ask God for more of that. I've been here almost 10 years. It's been the privilege and joy of my life. As long as God has me here, which I hope is a really, really long time, I want to continually on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis to ask how can we be a people of more and more grace and give that grace to other people freely as God has given it to us. Because he tells us in his word, God tells us in his word that that's what he wants us to be. Let's join together and pray. God, make us a people of grace, saved by grace, grown in grace, and extenders of grace to wheeling and beyond. We pray in the one who gave it all, Jesus. Amen. 
Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.